Well, now I uh, invite your attention to the reading of the scriptures as found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. We will look at verses 24 to 26. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. It will uh, serve you well to have them open to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll look at a lot of verses uh, there You may also put a tab at Genesis 3. We'll look there briefly. Uh, As you're doing that, and as a prelude to really the message today, let me uh, commend uh, Ronnie for his extraordinary powers of hymn selection. Uh, When he uh, asked me about my text this week, and I said, it's from Ecclesiastes, I said, well, good. Wish you well, because there's not a single hymn in our hymn book that uses a verse from Ecclesiastes as its basis. Um, And yet I think he uh, did marvelously well under the guidance of the Spirit, uh, choosing hymns today. Um, uh, Glorious things of thee are spoken. Let the world deride or pity, I'll glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, but solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. I think well fits um, uh, the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. And and thank you also to Paul for his uh, meditations in our time of um, uh, confession, uh, drawing our attention to um, the heart of Jesus uh, his heart, self-described heart, is lowly and gentle. Uh, it's just a good reminder as we weak and poor sinners uh, may draw near to him uh, in faith and confession of sin and you'll find their compassionate Savior. Uh, and I'll, you'll also uh, see that uh, though we did not coordinate uh, Paul's uh, thoughts and meditations, will dovetail well with uh, the message of Ecclesiastes. Okay, so now may our meditations and thoughts in Ecclesiastes be acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. So here we go. Ecclesiastes is a confounding book, perhaps depressing for some, with its repeated refrains of vanity and striving after the wind. Yet thoughtful consideration of the book will yield its return, and I trust it will this morning with God's help. The book of Ecclesiastes is a study of two ways of life under the sun. All the effort of one way leads to emptiness and loss amid wearisome toil, 
the other way finds <clears throat> divinely given wisdom and knowledge, joy, beauty, life, and rest. <clears throat> Both ways are lived out under the sun, so we need to understand what that means. Life under the sun is the life of all mortal men after the fall of Adam and Eve and their expulsion from the garden. It applies to all people in all places and in all times. It applies to the godly as well as the ungodly, to the wicked as well as the righteous. It is the inescapable of life filled with pain, contradiction, toil, and sweat, and frustration with its terminus in the grave. And we see this in Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. So I invite you to turn there and you will see this. Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Genesis 3, verse 16, to the woman, the Lord God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And there is a foretaste of life's pain. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And there is the foreshadow of life's frustrations and contradictions. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. <clears throat> there is life's coming pain repeated again. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And there is life's frustrations and contradictions again. Uh, you plant good seed for food, but the earth yields thorns. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread, and there is your toil. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, and there is your life's terminus under the sun, death and return to dust. All of this is God's temporal judgment upon the earth and life upon the earth. It is life of fallen mankind upon a fallen world. Here's how the teacher in Ecclesiastes describes life under the sun. It's from chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does it gain a man by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. What the teacher is saying is, this is your life under the sun. It doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, wise or foolish, righteous or wicked. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 14 to 16. The wise person has his eyes in his head, 
But the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same events happens to them all. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 2 to 3. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. What the teacher is describing from a worldly vantage point is a life of absurdities. Nothing seems to make sense. And nothing seems to matter under the sun. And what is more, the teacher says, try as you will. You cannot escape the vanity of life through any worldly pursuit or knowledge. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. But here is the ultimate outcome of the teachers searching for some meaning to life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, 
and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which with the toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Well, mark it well. What the teacher is seeing on uh, the horizontal level is everything that God has given mankind in return for rejecting him as creator, rejecting uh, his paradise that he created, and rejecting his sovereign government over all things. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 9 to 10, what gain has the worker from his toil I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You see, this life under the sun is what God has given to mankind for rejecting him in the garden. And even as men and women still reject him today, And here is the ultimate contradiction that baffles the minds of men. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. How can anyone make sense of the pointlessness of life under the sun when they have a sense of eternity stamped on their hearts? The answer is they cannot. And so they're trapped in a horizontal life, having a sense that there must be something more, something that will last, but they cannot grasp it any more than they can grasp the wind. All because they cannot grasp a vertical aspect to life, a life that is not under the sun, but beyond the sun. And how far have we come in 3,000 years? Uh, Well, listen to the words of uh, the poet Paul Simon. Here's a collection of some words of his that he's put to song. You may be familiar with it if you grew up in the 60s or 70s. I'm lost, I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. In the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, 
People talking without speaking, people hearing without listening. And all the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. That's some of his more familiar lyrics. Uh, he has a, a later s- song. It's called uh, Questions for the Angels. If you shop for love in a bargain store and you don't get what you bargained for, can you get your money back? If an empty train in a railway station calls you to its destination, can you choose another track? Well, I wake up from these violent dreams with my hair as white as the morning moon. Here's how he ends this question for the angels. If every human on the planet and all the buildings on it should disappear, would a zebra grazing in the African savanna care enough to shed a zebra tear? See what he's saying? <laughs> he can't make any meaning out of life. If everything that was ever done in the world of man should vanish, would it mean a wit to a zebra in Africa? Now, I proposed at the outset that there are two ways of life under the sun. The first is the way of the earthly-minded, or what John in the book of Revelations called the earth-dwellers, It's a life upon the hamster wheel. It's endless activity, but ultimately not getting anywhere, and certainly not escaping the absurdities of life. Or again, to repair to a musical uh, lyric, if you grew up in the 70s with the Eagles, it's life in the fast lane. Surely going to lose your mind. Now let me give you a more sanctified view from Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Bunyan captures the image of the earth dweller well. It's in part two of the Pilgrim's Progress. He calls the earth dweller the the man of the world. And let me set the scene for you. Um, This is not the story of Christian and his one or two travel companions. It's a story of Christiana, Christiana, Christian's wife, uh, her children, and uh, the traveling companions that she was with. They go to a place called the House of the Interpreter. And here I'll start with Bunyan. The interpreter takes them into a room where there was a man who could look no way but downward with a muckrake in his hand. There stood also one over his head with a celestial crown in his hand and offered that crown for the man's muckrake. Yet the man never looked up or regarded what was above him. He just kept raking to himself the straws, the small sticks, and the dust of the floor. Then Christiana said, I think I know something of the meaning of this, for this is the figure of a man of the world. Is it not, good sir? The interpreter says, you have said right. And his muckrake shows his carnal mind. You see him give heed to rake up the straws and the sticks and the dust of the floor rather than to what he says that calls to him from above with the celestial crown in his hand. This, he says, is to show that heaven is but a fable to some and that things here are counted the only things substantial 
And it also shows you that earthly things, when they are with power upon men's minds, carry their hearts away from God. That's the picture of life under the sun. You're just raking up the sticks and the muck and the dust, and you never look up to see what is above the sun held out to you. An example of the man with the carnal mind is the rich fool in our Lord's parable found in Luke chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. You're familiar with it. Here's the parable. The land of the rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and we'll build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, do you see the horizontal life there? The life of the carnal mind? He planted, built storehouses, became rich, then said to himself, come now, enjoy yourself. He should have read Ecclesiastes. If he had read that, he would not have talked to himself like that. Or if he did talk to himself like that, he wouldn't have listened to himself. But because he did not learn from the teacher about the vanity of storing up for yourself, the parable ends, God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do you not hear Ecclesiastes echoing through that parable? You have gathered up for yourself, and tonight your soul will leave your body, and everything you've gathered to yourself will go to someone else who never toiled for it. So what is the outcome of this earthly life and this earthly way under the sun? The answer is it is temporal living and temporal works with, at best, in a measure of God's common grace, at best, a little fleeting joy and a sense of meaning, and at worst, despair and hating your life. But there is a better way to live under the sun. It is the way of the heavenly mind. The first hint of a better way comes in our passage this morning from Ecclesiastes 2. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. Uh, we find this better way in Ecclesiastes, uh, repeated example, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 to 13, I perceive there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is the gift of God to man. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, Behold, I have... What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart.
It's significant, I think, that the first hint of a better way distinguishes between the two ways in terms of one important and overarching relationship, and that is the relationship you have with God. With God, there is the gift of joy, joy in work, joy in whatever possessions you have, while apart from God, there is nothing more than being occupied with gathering and collecting with no corresponding gift or the power to enjoy it all, only the vexation that you know that you will give up what you have gathered to someone else who has pleased God. And that raises a very important question for us. Who is the one that pleases God? Everything hinges on that question in the book of Ecclesiastes. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And so now we're on a quest to find if the teacher will tell us who is the one that pleases God and has life in Him and not apart from God. And thankfully, a teacher will tell us plainly who is the one who pleases God and who therefore will enjoy the benefits of God's pleasure even during the days of his life here under the sun. We could just fast forward to the end of the book and find the answer there in the teacher's final words. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But it will benefit us to think through the progression of the teacher's thoughts about the one who pleases God. And the beginning point of the one who pleases God is found in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, where the teacher first mentions the fear of God. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before Him. Here the teacher seems to have God as creator in view. So a person should stop and ponder the universe which God has made and which proclaims the glory of God. Give thought to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. We could turn to excuse me, Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The expected response to the revelation of creation is to acknowledge the Creator and to bow before Him in reverence and fear. And then after being awakened to acknowledge the Creator, the person begins to ask questions. Like, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Those would seem to be questions that naturally follow the question of Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8. The question that everyone should ask at some point. Here it is. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Am I toiling only to gather for myself and then to leave nothing of permanence or eternal value when my dead bones are in the grave? Or might my life in this world under the sun have some lasting value? 
The answer to that question is not found in the revelation of creation. It is found where God's written revelation of Himself and life before Him is kept, and that's in the house of God. And so the teacher says in chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your words. Uh, not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few there. Well, perhaps you enter the house of God still with some pride of your accomplishments, your good works, what you have gathered together, but then the sacred scroll is opened and you hear the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And now your fear of God increases because you must confess before Him that you too are a sinner. But being awakened to your sin is a good thing because you are growing in both the knowledge of God and of yourself. John Calvin opened his uh, great Magnus opened the Institutes of Christian Religion with that very thought that there's really only two types of knowledge that sum up all the wisdom that's worthy to be called wisdom, and it's this, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of yourself. He says the purpose of the knowledge of God is to show that there is one God whom we must all worship and honor, but also that He is the fount of all truth and wisdom and goodness and righteousness, judgment, mercy, power, and holiness, We must learn, therefore, to expect and ask these things from Him and with praise and thanksgiving to acknowledge that they come from Him. The purpose of the knowledge of yourself is to show your weakness, misery, vanity, and vileness, to fill us with despair, distrust, and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God. For Him, in Him, is found all that is good. It's really the muckraker now seeking to lift his eyes from the dust to look to see what might be above him. So now we're thinking on the right track because we have come to the house of God and to hear from him. And then we hear things like Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And we hear from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And then from chapter 9, verses 7 to 8, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let now oil be uh, not lacking from your head. So now if you're a sinner and yet God has already approved of what you do and calls you to wear the clean white garments and to anoint your head with oil of gladness, if He is pleased with you, then you know it is unmerited favor and grace. You don't earn it. You just gladly receive it by faith. And then you realize 
Who pleases God? The one who has faith. Hebrews chapter 11, for without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In the days of the teacher, faith meant embracing the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament. It was a gospel of repentance and forgiveness on the basis of a contrite heart and priestly sacrifices offered on your behalf. All of that foreshadowing the New Testament faith that embraces Christ's priestly sacrifice of Himself for you. That is the better way of living under the sun. In contrast, then, to the way of the man of the carnal mind under the sun, let's uh, look at some of the benefits and outcome of the better way, uh, the way of the heavenly mind. The first benefit is you begin to see and appreciate things with a vertical viewpoint rather than purely horizontal and an earthly perspective. Ecclesiastes 3.11, again, says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Time is a major theme in chapter 3. There's a time for one thing and then a time for the reverse. There's a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to tear, a time to sow, and on it goes. On the horizontal plane, we're tempted to say things are in perpetual change whether we want the things to change or not, but the sad corollary is the more things change, the more they stay the same, for there's nothing new under the sun. But with God in your thoughts, where he formerly was not, you begin to see and enjoy how God makes all things beautiful in its time. Derek Kidner puts it this way, we begin to see perpetual change not as something unsettling, but as an unfolding pattern, scintillating and God-given. Instead of changelessness, there is something better, a dynamic, divine purpose, which is beginning and end. Instead of frozen perfection, there is a kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and purity of blossoming and ripening beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of one creator. To see things in this light is a gift of God. But not only that, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 14 speaks of seeing that whatever God does is enduring and perfect. I perceive, says the teacher, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. I think here of Paul's words in Romans 12 that as our minds are no longer conformed to the worldly thinking, but they are renewed, we are able to discern that God's will for things and for us and myself is good and acceptable and perfect. The next benefit of seeing that there is life beyond the sun, not just under the sun, is the gift of joy, God to enjoy earthly things. We get that from our text this morning, but it's quoted elsewhere. It's... Also in the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. The man of the carnal mind has no power to enjoy what he gathers because it's never enough. And you can look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 and following. If you have money, it's not satisfied with money because it's never enough. It's all vanity. When goods increase, so do those who seem to eat them out of you, away from you. Sweet is the sweet of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. But who doesn't daydream of winning the big lottery 
and having a full bank account. But who goes on to ponder what it will cost you if you had that? So if you're not eaten up with craving more and more but can enjoy what you have, thank God for that. It's a gift to you. The third benefit of the heavenly mind is the enjoyment of your spouse. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy the wife, uh, life with the wife whom you love. I think it would imply also wives enjoy the husband who you love. But that's not what happens to the sinner. So often the sinner who does not please God, the teacher says he gets something bitter, more bitter than death. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 26. He says, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And I think that applies both to the women who seek after the adulterer as well as the man who seeks after the adulteress. You've heard it said, behind every successful man is a woman. The teacher would add, though, behind the fall of a successful man is usually another woman. Such is the sad end, often, for the man of the carnal mind who desires the pleasures he can give to himself more than the pleasures that God gives. And so let's cut to the end of the matter. The life of the better way, the life of the heavenly mind, escapes the weariness of thinking that nothing matters, and leads to the understanding that everything matters. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 to 14, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It really dovetails well with where Phil has been teaching in Romans about God bringing all things into judgment at the end of the days. It all matters. Remember, there are two ways of living life under the sun and two very different outcomes. The first is to go your own way. But here is the outcome of that. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, and see what it gets you. But know that for all that these things, God will bring you into judgment. Okay? The man of the carnal mind thinks, Nothing ultimately matters in the sun, but he should think again because in the final analysis, it all matters. In the final judgment, everything matters. Every small act of kindness, every sympathetic tear, even the widow's might given to the Lord, every small prayer for the sake of others, it all matters. Every act of worship, your being here this morning matters because you matter. Your soul matters. So the better way is to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. If you are still young, but if you're like me, you're not, it's better to remember late than early. Better to just remember, even in your old age. Remember Him, fear Him, obey Him. G. Campbell Morgan says, to do this is to find life not merely under the sun, but over it as well. To pass from the imperfect hemisphere into the perfect sphere. To do this is to have light upon the facts and problems of life, which we will all have. We all have problems under life. That is life under the sun. It's reality for us all. But they're not dark and dismal anymore because we can see them from a heavenly perspective.
Let me just close with my own solace and comfort uh, from thinking about the better way of life under the sun. And it's this. And here it dovetails well with what Paul said at the opening of the service. Jesus walked this earth and experienced life under the sun. He experienced pain and sorrow, humiliation. He experienced the ultimate contradiction. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And he experienced death. And what does that mean? It means that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he has a heart for the one who is weary with the busyness of life under the sun. When those times come to me, and they do, when I'm weary with the busyness, the frustrations, the pains, and the toil of life under the sun, I find in Jesus a compassionate Savior who is now seated in the heavenly realms above the sun, and I see Him with those outstretched, pierced hands saying, Come to me. Come to me, all who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life. That's a place of refuge for me. It is a place where I see that everything matters and that everything in the world is working as it should. It is a place where I'm reminded that what seems to be working against me is really the other way around. All things are working for me. That's the point of Romans 8, 28. And so I take heart, and perhaps you will too, Read and contemplate Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I wonder if you are in need of that grace and that help this morning. You will find it only in Jesus Christ. He is our forerunner through this life under the sun. And so go to him. And he will give you the rest of soul that you seek.